Thank you, PJ. Are we on? Okay. Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeff Urick. Uh, my wife, Ann, and I and our daughter, Jade, are missionaries. We, uh, we were in Alaska for about eight years. Uh, we're here now on furlough, and we're getting ready to transition over to Ireland in October. So we're here for just a short time, a couple of months yet. So uh, if I've not met you or you were here from VBS, you're a VBS parent and I'm an unfamiliar face, that's who we are. And we'll be disappearing again in a few months, so that's okay. But uh, I do uh, understand that we need to send a birthday shout out today to the man who just read the scripture. So happy birthday, TJ. <laughs> I understand, you know, usually um, guys aren't that concerned about, like, their age and telling people their age, so you're 26, right? 27? Okay. Very good. Happy birthday, TJ. TJ read our scripture that we're going to be looking at today in the book of James, and uh, as he had mentioned... Uh, it is on page 854 in your Red Pew Bible, so if you'd like to, if you turn there already, if you want to stay there with me, we'll take a look at these passages today. word that pops up several times in this passage is the word religion and religious. And um, I want to ask, what comes to mind when you think of the word religion? Or if somebody asks you if you're religious, what pops into your head, what thoughts what images come up. And I do want to say that if, if the images that come to your mind are those of men in robes and organ music and big cathedrals, I hope that VBS and the worship team kind of blew that away today because these are people serving God and these people are just as much religious as anybody in the, uh, in the flowing robes. So we're going to look at that word today and one of the things that we understand about religion is that in modern usage today, this word really has lots of different interpretations. If you were to gather up 10 different people and ask them, what does it mean to be religious? You'd probably get 10 different answers or 10 different ideas. You'd probably also find that most people define religion based on their personal experiences, what they saw, what they experienced in their life. In the publication Psychology Today, back in March of 2014, they published an article called Spiritual But Not Religious. And in this, they talk about the idea of religion. It says, Religion has become a bad word for many Americans. This is because the word religion has accumulated negative connotations. Americans tend to equate, equate religion with Christianity. And especially people think of guilt-inducing proscriptions on behavior seemingly arbitrary rules, hellfire preaching on sin and judgment, unreasoning insistence on dogma and doctrinal orthodoxy, divisive sectarianism, and aggressive proselytizing. Relatively few people want to be religious if that is all it means. Many people may prefer to describe themselves as interested in spirituality or the sacred. Even many Christians dislike the word religion and insist that Christianity is not about religion but relationship with God. In the, uh, the, on the website, Grace to You, this is a, a website of John MacArthur's ministry. He is a preacher in California, and uh, they, they ran a series 
on Christian cliches that are often used within the Christian world uh, last, earlier this year. And in February 2016, they wrote this. The word religion has become a pejorative in the pulpits of too many preachers, and it has spread to the pews as well. Well-meaning evangelists and church leaders are willing to, ta- to labor long and hard to portray religion like a straitjacket of rules and regulations. The way of Christ is then put forth as the fresh alternative to the villainy of religion. Such efforts are more based in the desire to erase negative perceptions than in an accurate portrayal. Nowhere is this more evident than in the commonly used Christian cliche, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I've heard that phrase a lot. I'm sure you've probably heard that phrase also. And uh, my, my point in, in mentioning these articles is not to interact with what's in them. There's a lot there that's wrong. There's a lot there that's misinformation. There's some that's right. But I just wanted to illustrate the fact that religion has lots of different meanings to people. And it becomes very personal to people when you ask about religion. It also shows us that these words, religion, religious, have, have become very negative to people. Now, we don't want to make the mistake of eliminating this word from our vocabulary, and we don't want to try to change the meaning of it, as was mentioned in the uh, Grace to You article, because Scripture uses this word. And so we want to make sure that we are seeking an accurate portrayal, as the Grace to You uh, article had mentioned. So if nothing else, these things should emphasize the fact that we need to seek a biblical definition of religion and what it means to be religious. So that's what our text aims to do here today. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Uh, These two verses together, uh, James, as he writes this, he translates the word religion, the word religion and religious uh, that was translated to those words basically refer to the outward practice of someone's faith. One commentator defines them as Quote, worship in the sense of the outward expression of religion in ritual and liturgy and ceremony, end quote. So James is talking about the externals. He's talking about what we do publicly as people of faith, what other people see us doing as people of faith, how we serve, and how we worship God. This is what he's talking about. Now, interestingly enough, he does not specifically define religion in these verses but instead he kind of gives us a picture of what it looks like. First he tells us what religion is not, verse 26. And then he tells us what religion is in verse 27. Now my original intention was to look at both of these verses and do a comparison and contrast between what is and what is not. There was just too much for me to go through in one message. I would love to do a two-part message on this, one verse 26 and then one verse 27, but I've got one shot here today. We're going to be heading to Ireland soon, so maybe somebody else can pick it up or come back in four years for the second part. So we'll see how that works out. But today, I'm going to focus on verse 27, what religion is. There's a lot in this verse that needs to be broken down and needs to be defined, so we're going to look at this word by word, phrase by phrase as we need to, and try to come up with what James describes as a biblical idea of religion. First of all, he starts out, religion that is pure and undefiled. Pure and undefiled. These two words speak to the heart. These two words speak to service 
to God that is free from any ulterior motives, done strictly out of our love for God and our love for people. It is not done for any gain. It's not done for any glory for ourselves. It's not done to get the credit. It's not done for the pat on the back. It is done strictly out of glory for God. And then when he says this as pure and undefiled, he gives us two ways that we live out this pure religion, two ways, two things that this looks like in our lives. Number one, to visit orphans and widows, and number two, to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Visiting orphans and widows, the first one. The word visit here, translated as visit, is really kind of a mild way to put it. When we think of visiting, we think of maybe a social call, people getting together, um, we're kind of catching up with, with people. We're, we're just we're visiting. It's friends. It's maybe acquaintances or relatives. But this word actually has a little bit stronger connotation to it. It literally means to see to, to look after, or to address the situation. Taking action to meet the need. This is not action that is passive and distant. He's talking about action that is active participation. So now orphans and widows, he's talking about addressing the needs of orphans and widows. We'll get into that a little bit more. But um, why would he use the phrase orphans and widows? That's not a phrase we use a lot today. We, we, we understand the terms, but we don't use that phrase together like that. Well, this is a phrase that would be very, very familiar to first century believers, especially to the Jews who knew their scriptures. In the cultural context of the Bible, the father and the husband was the one who presided over the family. He was the one who was expected to be the provider, to be the protector of the family. He was the one that made sure the family's needs were met. He was responsible for providing for their daily needs. Now, God built into the law, into his, his, his law that he gave to the nation of Israel, he built in there ways for these people to be taken care of should the father and the husband die prematurely. If you'd like to turn with me to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25, if you have the Pew Bible, it's on page 142 of the Red Pew Bible, Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, towards the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate, to the elders, and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So we see in here the principle that God expected the family members to be the first ones to care for the needs of a widow. 
If a man dies and he left a wife and he left children, his family was the first line of responsibility to take care of their needs. Uh, Going back in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 29, um, gives instructions for the nation of Israel. Uh, Actually, that that chapter gives instructions on um, setting aside a portion of their crops every year uh, for the, the purpose of the temple. And they were to bring their offering to the temple so that the Levites, who did not have an inheritance from God, would be provided for. Well, in Deuteronomy 14.29, it instructs them that every third year that they do this, a portion of that tithe was supposed to be set aside for the needy, for the poor, for the widows and orphans. And so God has built into the law ways that these people are going to be taken care of. And so we see here the principle that these people are very close to God's heart. He is concerned about the needs of orphans and widows. Now, even though God gave these instructions, people often disobeyed. When, uh, when the brother, as was mentioned in, in, uh, in the first passage, when the brother refused to take in the widow, then oftentimes what would happen is the widow and her children were basically left to society. They often joined the ranks of the destitute. They joined the ranks of the poor. They were often being victimized by those in authority, so they were taken advantage of because they had no one who was their provider. They had no one who was their protector. They had no one who was their advocate. No one was on their side. In Ezekiel chapter 22, God tells Israel that they have become a reproach and a mockery to the rest of the world. And among the reasons for their judgment, among the reasons listed for why they are being exiled out of the land, is in Ezekiel 22, verse 7, when he says, the fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. So God was not only concerned about meeting the physical needs of orphans and widows, he was concerned about them being treated fairly. He was concerned about justice for these people. This is a principle that comes right into the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees, which was a group of religious leaders at the time, uh, approached Jesus And they were asking him questions about the resurrection. These are people who didn't believe in the resurrection. They had no belief in it at all. And in fact, their question really had nothing to do with what they were asking about. They were trying to trap Jesus. They wanted him to say something that they could accuse him of. So they go to him and say, well, if a man dies and leaves a widow and she marries his brother, then he dies and she marries his next brother, all the way down to seven brothers, they said to him, who is going to be her husband in heaven? Now, they didn't really care who was going to be her husband in heaven. They wanted to trap Jesus. But their question comes straight out of Deuteronomy 25. So this shows us that when James uses the words or the phrase orphans and widows, they would have known exactly who he was talking about. This was familiar to people at that time. So when we see this phrase, orphans and widows, we can take this really in two ways. Number one, he's talking in a wider symbolic sense of the poor, uh, the, poor the needy, uh, people being rep- the orphans and widows being representative of people who are destitute, people who have lost their means, people who need help. Now, we could say, well, why wouldn't James just use the word poor? Why wouldn't he use the word needy? Why wouldn't he use the word destitute? Because this phrase, again, carried weight with the people who heard it at the time. And it emphasizes the fact 
that not only meeting physical needs, but the combining this with the word visit, taking action, being actively involved, actively participating in meeting the needs of orphans and widows who not only need physical needs, but they need an advocate. Somebody who needs an advocate, somebody who needs somebody standing on their side seeking to address the situation requires active participation. It's not a distant thing. And so when you combine the two and you look at the, at the history and you look at the, the grammar of the text, you can start to see now what he's talking about. He also uses this in a literal sense. There's no reason why we have to take it as just symbolic or just representative. Caring for widows and orphans. First Timothy chapter 5, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy and he's giving him instructions on the church, how to run the church, uh, um, how to... Uh, how to meet people's needs. And in 1 Timothy 5, the first part of the chapter gives instructions and guidelines on how to care for widows. And these instructions that he gives continue the principle right from Deuteronomy because it basically says that the first people who are to be responsible is the family. Again, these people would have understood this if they knew their scriptures. So he's saying the first line of defense for widows who have lost their needs or lost their means family members who have lost their provider, is the other family, the other family members. And then he goes on in, in 1 Timothy 5, and he says, if the family cannot provide or cannot take in this widow for whatever reason, then the church steps in and becomes the meter of those needs. We have widows here in our fellowship, here among our body of believers right now. So how can, we, how can we provide for them? How can we help them with their needs? That's something that we can consider and seriously think about as we read this text. The adoption movement of the last 20 to 30 years has been a wonderful way for the church to become very actively involved in meeting the needs of orphans, seeking to address their situation. Adoption is obviously very close to our hearts and our family. Uh, if you don't know us, our daughter Jade is from China. We adopted her two years ago. She was in an orphanage. And so while we understand that adopting an orphan into your family is not for everyone, we realize that it is a, a, a great way to meet that need, but not everyone is called to do that. But I don't want us to miss the fact that even though we're not called to necessarily do that, there is a significant theological meaning behind simply caring for physical needs of orphans. And this is why orphans and widows and people who have lost their inheritance are so close to God's heart. It is a perfect picture of the gospel, of what Jesus Christ did for us through his death and resurrection. I'd like to uh, look at three passages, and uh, these are three passages that are, are foundational. I would almost suggest that uh, or recommend that these become a regular part of your, of your Bible reading diet because this is foundational stuff. The first one is, uh, is in Romans chapter 8. Uh, in your pew Bible, it's on page 801. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read three verses here, and I want you to hear the theme coming through. So Romans 8, starting at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The next passage is in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 4. So just uh, go forward a few pages to page 825, Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. All three of these passages were written by Paul. He understood the principle of orphans and widows in the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. And the last passage in Ephesians, back a few more pages to page 827 in your pew Bible, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Spiritually, before we were believers, we were like orphans. We had no heavenly father. We had no internal inheritance. We had no hope for the future. Not only were we orphans, but as one scholar described it to me, we were misbehaving orphans. We were rebellious. We were against God. The Bible says that we need to be reconciled to God. It means we did not agree with God. We were unlove, unlovable. God loved us, but we were unlovable. And yet, even though we rejected God and he had every reason to turn his love away from us, he sent Jesus to give his life so that we could have hope and we could be adopted into God's family. That's why grace is so amazing. And so that song, Amazing Grace, we've sung it so many times it's kind of lost its punch. But when you read read through these and then listen to that song again, that is why grace is so amazing. So when we talk about adopting an orphan into a family, giving that orphan a home, this is a perfect picture of God's pursuit of us and his adoption of us as children into his family. Giving an orphan a home is providing for him or her what they truly cannot provide for themselves. This is how we help the helpless. And then the the, uh, second part. What is pure and undefiled religion? The second part, keep oneself unstained from the world. The word unstained is the same Greek word used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, referring to Christ, Jesus Christ as a pure lamb. Again, this is referring to purity. This is referring to the purity of our hearts. Unstained from the world. What is the world? 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 defines it for us. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that phrase, the pride of life, can also be translated as pride in possessions. So when he says keeping ourselves unstained from the world, he's basically saying what makes me feel good, what looks good to me, and what gives me status, what gives me a sense of importance to those around me. Now, this is not a complete denial of pleasure. It's not a complete denial of things that are enjoyable. It's not a denial of things that are a blessing to us. Jesus said, I came to have life, give you life and life abundantly. 
Ecclesiastes talks about a time and a place for everything, a time for joy, a time for dancing, a time for celebration. What he's talking about here is turning away from pleasures that are sinful, contrary to God's word, or the worship of our pleasures. Our enjoyments may not be contrary to God's word, but we may be worshiping them. We may be giving them an unhealthy place in our lives. Essentially, it's putting me and my desires at the center of my life. At the end of verse 27 in in, uh, James, James 1, he tells us to keep ourselves unstained from these things because letting these desires take root in our hearts are going to sabotage our ability to serve God with pure motives. When we put me at the center, then everything else around exists to serve me. This will end up including our worship and our work with for God. The way we practice our religion will end up being about serving me. One more passage to look at here. James chapter 4, uh, just going, uh, going forward in James, page 855 in your pew Bible. So just one more page over. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So the same book, the same writer, the same audience here. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And in the very next verse, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. He's talking here about the world, what he just told us back in chapter 1 to keep ourselves unstained from. And he's talking to this group of believers. Earlier, he says, brothers, he's talking to the believers here. He's talking to the church. He's saying, brothers, what is causing fights and quarrels among you? Your desires, me, <laughs> what we want. When he says desire in, this, in uh, James chapter 4, he's, this word is defined as to long or to lust for. When he says covet, it's talking about jealously long for. He's saying you covet and can obtain. You are jealously longing for these things. We're putting me at the center and everything else is, is, is uh, existing to serve me. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ who are tearing each other apart with their words because they're not getting what they want. Me at the center, everything around me existing to serve me. So James is warning us here in, uh, in chapter 1. He's warning us not to let the priority of me stain our hearts because it's going to infect everything that we do. I have to confess that uh, as a missionary, it's very tempting to have me at the center uh, we experienced some significant conflicts uh, on the field up in Alaska, and part of that was ambition, ministry ambition. And I will stand here today and say that part of that was my ministry ambition. I wanted to do great things for God and attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Uh, that puts me at the center because I wanted that badge of accomplishment. I wanted to say, look what we did right there. Well, that puts me at the center. And it never works out well when me is at the center. 
So I want to I want to let you know and ask you to pray for us as we get ready to head over to Ireland that that will not be the case again. That we have learned our lesson. Me is not at the center. God is at the center. It is all for the glory of God, to the glory of God alone. That means our ministry, that means our work, that means our worship. Everything we do is to glorify God. So now that we've gone through all of this, we can say, what is religion? How do we get a biblical picture of religion from this verse here? A couple of things. Number one, it is done from pure motives. Serving God to serve God, not to serve myself. People are more important than the programs done simply out of a love for God and a love for people. This verse emphasizes the importance of pure motives within our religion, within our worship of God, within our service to God. Because work, our work for God, visiting orphans and widows, representative of what we do, is sandwiched in between two phrases about purity. Number one, we start with pure hearts and motives, pure and undefiled. We care for those who need help, visiting orphans and widows. We keep our hearts and our motives pure, unstained from the world. Purity, work, purity. That's not a mistake. Number two, religion is active and engaging personal contact with the poor and those who need help. Giving money is an essential part of this. Giving finances is an essential part of meeting needs. It is absolutely necessary. It continues the principle of Deuteronomy 14, setting aside a portion of the tithe specifically to meet the needs of people who are in need of the poor. However, giving alone can be passive, can be distant. It's easy to do, it's helpful to do, but it's not all we should do. James is telling us that visiting means to actively participate and seek to address the situation. That sounds like a daunting task. Say, well, how on earth do we, do we meet their needs? I mean, there's so many, it's so overwhelming. Well, I didn't really plan this for this message, but uh, on Friday, uh, Ann and I and Jade got a tour of the Capital City Rescue Mission. And this church has been very well plugged in with that mission. It's long known here uh, for, for a while. I, hadn't, I was there a couple of years ago. Ann had not been there for a while. But well, I'll tell you what, if there's ever an example of people who are addressing the situation of the poor and needy, they are it. And I will tell you, I'm sure they need help. I'm sure they need volunteers. They need money. They need funds to operate but they also need people to volunteer. And there is something significant about being eyeball-to-eyeball, face-to-face with these people who are in these situations. Something significant goes on in your heart when you see, wow, they don't have a home to go to tonight. I just want to suggest that's a great way to be involved in addressing the situation. We can't solve all the problems. We can't figure it all out. But somebody's out there doing something about it. We can join up with what they are doing. Number three, religion. Pure motives, active, engaging contact with the poor and the needy. And number three, meeting the needs of orphans and widows. This may be representative of the poor and the destitute and the needy uh, from, from a biblical culture. But we can and we should seek to apply this literally. We may not be under Deuteronomy anymore. We may not be under the law anymore, under those requirements. But God's heart for these people has not changed. I mentioned the adoption adoption movement. 
Um, and we, have, we adopted a daughter. And I will say that there were lots of people who walked along us, alongside of us and walked with us in that, in that adoption journey to bring our daughter home. There are organizations that, that uh, all they do is seek to give children homes. Orphans, true orphans out there all, around the, all over the world, they seek to, do, to bring them into uh, forever families is what they call it. And so I would say, suggest if God has not laid on your heart a burden for adopting an orphan, look to help somebody who is or look to help somebody who may have that burden or who has adopted an orphan. So, again, there's no reason to not take these things literally from this passage as well. As I mentioned, we have widows in our fellowship here. Maybe we try to find out, how can we meet your need? What needs do you have? What can we do to help you? As someone who is lost, probably a provider and a protector. When we practice pure and undefiled religion, the world sees God's heart for the helpless. They also see a living example of our adoption into God's family through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know that uh, some folks might be here who are visiting. Your kids were in VBS. Um, Maybe religion has not been a part of your life. Maybe it was at one time, and uh, you've you've gotten away from it for whatever reason. Uh, Maybe you've never had any experience with religion. And uh, maybe you're here, and you have never made a decision to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. We heard a testimony that six kids... Seven kids chose to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. In the adoption world, as I mentioned, they talk about giving, bringing orphans into a forever family. If you have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is an opportunity to come into a forever family, God's family, the people of God. As we saw from our, from our scriptures, you can be adopted as sons and become God's children, have an inheritance in eternity. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you believe with your mouth, if you believe with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus died and rose again, you will be saved. You have an opportunity to know that hope today. And so I would encourage you, if you somebody here you know, another parent who, uh, who you got to know through uh, VBS, talk to them, talk to anybody here and say, I want to know the hope of Jesus Christ. I want to know the hope of eternity. I want to know the hope of a forever family, being in God's family. Don't let this day go by without making sure that your eternity is secure. You can have eternal life today. Believe in Jesus Christ. Receive him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much that you adopted us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life so that we can have life and we can have hope. And we thank you, Lord, for the great work you did through VBS. Thank you, Lord, for all the hands that were involved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the worship we had today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that all of this lifts up your name and glorifies you. And we pray, Father, that for for people here who do not know you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes and speak to their hearts. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see lives changed today and that everyone would know the hope and the joy of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.